the Litro Lab podcast. The Making of Legacy by Michelle Wheeler. We ran barefoot most of the summer and took pride in who could walk across the hot pavement and not flinch. I tried, like my cousins, to not even slow down when we reached Aunt Ruth's gravel driveway. Rockfoot, we called it. My sister had it best. But not in Grandpap's basement. Always shoes in Grandpap's basement, where metal shavings and grease made the floor. I would beg him to work down there, just to be surrounded by all his massive machinery, the workings of which were a fantastic mystery. He started his company shortly after the Great Depression, named with great pride after his wife, my Gammy, as the M.I. Capel Company. A true product of those meager times, he retooled each piece of equipment for the next contract. Pleased with the savings, sure, but there was this small boy in him, even as he became an old man, that was more thrilled by modifying improved versions of his machinery. He was an inventor at heart. When he saw his neighbors in need during the worst of times, He trained them in until everyone on the block worked for him. He'd never admit it, but I have a hunch he created some work for those that couldn't scrounge enough to feed their families. He'd make sure his own family had just enough, and then wouldn't think twice about the smaller rations. All were taken care of. Grandpap's basement was the evolution of him over 60 years. He set up a complex, overlapping web of ducting above the furnace that stretched to the ceiling to capture every bit of heat from that old thing. Why buy a new furnace? Every mass of metal, hundreds of machines, were caked with decades of grease and production. Folgers cans were tucked snugly between them, nailed to the wall and filled with screws, nails, and bits organized by size. Clamps hefty enough to hold together tractor tires hung from the walls. Grandpap's basement was a place of creation, an inspiration for invention. It was sacred. I'd asked to work with him every week we'd visit. Sometimes my mom would spare him having to disappoint me by claiming a need to get home. Sometimes he let me work in his garden with him as a consolation. Pap was picky. He'd watch me hoe up the weeds, and I could feel the restraint it took for him to let me do the work, to not take back the tool and correct the depth or the angle or the path of my turning of the earth. He did no gardening himself when we worked together. We'd walk the rows in quiet, spare his occasional correction. Not so close to the plants there, honey girl. I tried harder with every stroke. I suppose for more of his approval... Even though he showered me with admiration constantly, he'd shake his head with wonder when I gave him a very average watercolor painting, and he'd make a show of it to everyone he saw. His light blue eyes would sparkle when he'd show every guest a cross-stitched Christmas ornament I made, even though I only followed the simple pattern. But I wouldn't let up on begging to work in his basement. Usually he'd just look at me. My cross-stitching or my painting, he understood, but how to make space for a young girl in a lifetime's work of men stumped him. Not wanting to disappoint, he finally gave in and let me sweep the floor once. I crept through the narrow paths amongst his machinery with a wiry broom, reaching back as far as I could under a gear wider than my wingspan to nab those loose twirls of metal. 
stretched under a drill press as tall as my pap for a few more. He followed me around all four tiny rooms, double-checking every corner, every crevice for a lone metal shaving. After four hours of sweeping, he handed me two dollars like it was a million bucks. He grinned with sincerity as he handed it over, proud that his granddaughter just learned a little something about the value of hard work. I kept asking for more, each request filled with hope that I'd get a small taste of my grandpap's lifetime of metalwork, to be a part of it, to be a part of him. He'd study me each time I asked, saying nothing. Maybe he finally found a job for me because he saw that my relentless desire wasn't going anywhere. One day, before I had a chance to ask, he gave me that same silent study and after a pause said, Well, are you coming down? I wanted to tangle him up in a giant hug, but metal workers don't bounce with glee, so I used all my self-control to play it cool and said, Sure. He set me up on a small metal chair right next to the overlapping intestines of ducting that smothered the furnace. He had cleared a small section of vinyl top table as a workspace, with a Folgers can full of smooth short pieces of metal set to one side and a light clamped to the other. A hinged hand crank and pipe shaft were clamped to the table with a specialized vise just in front of my chair. He showed me how to turn on the lathe that would carve threads into half of each rod, pointing just once at the belt that drove the lathe fast and strong enough to dig through into metal. He looked at the sleeves of my shirt and fixed those blue eyes on mine. I pushed my sleeves up and nodded back. I understand. He set a piece of metal in the hand crank and emphasized the importance of even pressure as the threads were stripped from the rods in neat little twirls. An oil can perched above was set to a steady drip, 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 a pace I'd need to keep up with so that each rod received just enough oil to prevent friction and heat buildup. He showed me, with very few words, how to push just so far backing out occasionally until I reached a marker that would ensure the thread length was consistent. Each piece was to be indistinguishable from the next. I tried a few pieces until the hand crank suddenly required more pressure to thread the screws. Pap eased back close to me, turned off the power to the lathe, and showed me how to clear curly shards of metal from the threader. I started up again, started to feel like I could do this, it was that fleeting distraction of thinking, not doing, that made me push the next rod in too far. I placed it in the reject bin, knowing it was waste, knowing what waste meant to Pap. But he said nothing. I concentrated harder on the next piece until I was immersed in the drip of oil and securing rods in the vise and even pressure on the hand crank and the stopper line. I only thought to look again for Pap when a quarter of the rods had been threaded. When I looked over my shoulder, he was gone, and I heard the smooth hum of him working in the next room, which was perhaps one of the proudest moments of my life. I focused on those screws with everything I had. It remains to this day the best job I ever had. It was decades later when my grandpap died. My Gammy, a woman he adored without limit, died a few years earlier and he crumbled without her. I think he would have readily snuggled right up next to her in the ground to stay close to her forever. I like to think that they're eternally curled up together now.
When he moved into assisted living, my family hosted a huge garage sale, inviting neighbors and strangers to empty out their house and make space for the next family. The basement door was right off the driveway, so most entered the house there. My mom tells me that everyone that crossed the threshold froze in the humility of an overcrowded basement flooded with ingenuity and fabrication. Lone light bulbs swung in the crowded rooms, casting shadows of machinery all around them. People stood speechless as they were transported back in time to small-scale working-class manufacturing. Inside the brilliant mind of a man whose workings they could unravel no more than a ball of excessively tangled fishing line. Once they could find movement again, they started making the phone calls. Hey Bob, you've got to get over here. I've never seen anything like this. I hope they felt his heart. I hope they could smell in the grease and sweat a man who loved unconditionally. A man whose frugal wiring never escaped the Great Depression. He used to buy beer off some guy's truck in Pittsburgh. White cans with bold black letters that read simply beer. Proud that he only spent three bucks per case. So what that he had to shake a little salt in there to make it bubble? He scored generic beer. I hope they saw the pool at the bottom of the hill. The one he dug by hand in a bowl shape filled with concrete. Not one that would meet today's code. And yes, the sides were slippery, enough for my glorious wipeout one summer to give me a hefty concussion. He put in rows of non-slip tread tape after that, always adjusting, always modifying to make things better. They wouldn't know that he machined a specialized part for the space shuttle, because he would never boast about such a thing. The Depression also engraved in him that love meant more than money, always without exception. His bright blue eyes would shine with the honor of being able to share that love readily, to make you feel like you were the special one, like you were the one with amazing potential on the brink of something outstanding. I hope that every person who stood in that basement knew that they were in the presence of a man who gave far more than he took from the world, and it filled him with gratitude to do so. My pap spent no time contriving ways to leave an intentional impression. He was so honestly himself that his friends and family likely feel portions of his legacy in the same way. Yet other parts are different, because legacies are not singular. They are uniquely defined by the people whose lives we've touched, how well we've experienced each other, what we offer up of ourselves in return. We can strive to be the best versions of us, constantly learning how we can be of service, looking to spread the gifts we have to give. But the legacy we leave is not necessarily ours to choose. Too many blind spots. And what will my legacy be in all its forms for everyone who holds on to a piece of me? My oncologist told me that he's seen that the greatest gift his patients can give their families is the way they walk through stage four cancer. I remind myself of that when I'm struggling to be the person I want to be. And I'm okay with being someone who has strayed from the best of herself, who has been lost at times, who has been changed by this disease. I haven't floated through cancering like Cinderella at peace, surrounded by cheerful birds amidst that which is cruel. But I keep getting back up. 
I keep looking deep within for the person I know as me again and again. Above all else, I hope my legacy is defined by the whole of my life, and maybe even more by the non-cancery parts. I hope I am known as someone who loves deeply, someone who sincerely cares about people enough to listen with the focus of threading metal rods, someone who loves to laugh, someone who values doing a job well done, who loves to sing in the car with gusto with the music up as loud as it'll go. But I suppose my legacy is not mine to decide. So instead, I'll live today as generously as I am able. Subscribe to the Litro Lab podcast on Spotify.